All right, let's pray. Lord, thanks for your goodness and for your love and your grace and your mercy and your word, Lord, that's so amazing to us, a lamp into our feet and a light into our paths, and we're just so thankful for who you are, past, present, and future, and all that you uh, desire to uh, speak to our hearts today, Lord. So we ask that you would do that all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 1. So last week we finished Colossians. We do an Old Testament book and a New Testament book. Uh, so in this case, we'll probably do Jeremiah and Lamentations because they're kind of a pair. And then we go back to Thessalonians uh, after Jeremiah and Lamentations. And so we find ourselves here in Jeremiah chapter 1. So we've got to kind of reset our brains a little bit. Now we're in prophecy and history and some of those sorts of things. Um, not unlike uh, when we went through Isaiah. So um, everybody okay with that? Everybody excited? Game on? Chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. In the thirteenth year of his reign, it came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. That is a mouthful. All right? So it deserves, so that's sort of the setting of really the next 52 chapters. And so I thought it would be helpful for us to sort of unpack the setting here a little bit. First of all, Jeremiah is a priest. He's from, he's, so he'd be descended from Aaron, uh, the brother of Moses. And he was from Anathoth. Anybody remember anything significant that ever happened in Anathoth? Me neither. Nothing significant happened in Anathoth. It was a, it was like Milton, right? So so and so was from Milton, uh, or my, our friends are here from Indianapolis. They were um, uh, just to show you. Anyway, he said, "Yeah, we're camping up at. Guess where he said they're camping? About a half hour north of here, Versailles." He said, "Yeah, we're camping up at Versailles," and I'm like. You sure drove a long way to get here. That's all I got to say. Because <laughs> there's Versailles right up north. But Versailles, that's a long way across the pond. But anyway, uh, Anna, the point is Anathoth is kind of a no big deal, obscure town, right? Within the tribe of Benjamin. Now, interestingly, we talk about the nation of Israel was divided, right? There was the northern king, ten kingdoms uh, that was called Israel. Uh, during the reign of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, that nation was split. And then the southern kingdom was uh, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and we call it the tribe of, or we call it the nation of Judah. Like we forget about Benjamin. And Benjamin actually kind of got just swallowed up in Judah, and that's a whole other history. And so now you got this like obscure little town. It's about three miles away from Jerusalem. So, you know, you'd, you'd always feel like you're kind of in the shadows of Big Brother. And the point is, it's kind of an obscure little town. Anybody ever feel like you're from an obscure little town? 
that not much happened on the map? Well, that's okay. So was Jeremiah. That was the point in all that. So God doesn't mind using people from obscure places. Uh, And notice here, it says God first spoke to Jeremiah in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah. Now, I don't know about you, but I always have to go back and review. Is that okay? Turn to the left, 2 Chronicles chapter 34. So in my mind, I had to kind of do the re, you know, all these Jehoah whoever's, uh, I got to keep them straight. And, uh, and so my mind, as I was going back and doing that, uh, I think there's some interesting things that come out. So Second uh, Chronicles chapter 34. And we're going to read these, uh, the end of Second Chronicles here, just highlights of it, not all of it talks about the reign of Josiah. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. So Josiah was actually the last good king in the nation of Judah. Okay? Keep that in mind. He's the last good king in the nation of Judah. Notice, how old was he when he became king? Eight. Did you all feel like you were on top of your game when you were eight? Me neither. Actually, I did. And then somewhere between 9 and 59, I realized, oh, I wasn't as on top of my game at 8 as I thought I was. Uh, But anyway, for the eighth year of his reign, which means he would have been 16, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year of his reign, when he was 20, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images. So I want you to see this guy, Josiah. Number one, he's a, he's a good godly king at the age of eight. So God can identify good and evil in a child, right? So young people have a capacity for sin. They have a capacity for good. And uh, I've said a million times before, they're not like subhuman. They're not like some kind of subhuman species. They're children. They're, they're, they're homo sapiens that happen to be younger and smaller, okay? So they're real people and uh, very, very significant in the eyes of God. So anyway, at eight years old, he's a godly king. When he becomes 16, he's really now seeking the Lord. He began to seek the God of his father, David. And when he became uh, somewhere around 20, he started to purge Judah and Jerusalem of all of the pagan, idol, paraphernalia, garbage. Okay? When he was 20 years old, a 20-year-old king, I mean, honestly, most of us would say we weren't on the top of our game when we were 20, right? But at the, at the age of 20, he's purging the kingdom. And they broke down the altars and the, the bales and the, in his presence and the incense altars which were above them. He cut down and the wooden images, the carved images and the molded images, he broke in pieces and made dust of them and scattered the graves of those who burned sacrifices. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars. He did all this kind of stuff, right? And so that's the setting that we find Jeremiah on the scene, okay? So, Josiah starts to do all this purging when he's about 20 years old, would have been in the 12th year of his reign. We read in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1 or 2, that 
Jeremiah, the Lord spoke to Jeremiah in the 13th year of Josiah. So it would have been a year after he started all this destruction of all the idol worship. So I want you to get your head around kind of the context. Does that make sense? Cool things are happening during the reign of Josiah when Jeremiah is there. He gets to experience a part of it. And then look at verse 8. In the 18th year of his reign, he would have been 26 now. And so this would have been uh, uh, five years into Jeremiah coming on the scene. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, when he had purged the land of the te- uh, and the temple, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, Masai, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Jehoahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. So once you see this, and in my mind I'm still thinking about Colossians a little bit because I, it's just a sweet book in my mind. You know, Colossians, we were told to put off some things, right? Put off these things that impair our fellowship with God and one another. And then we're supposed to put on these things like tender mercies and forgiveness and compassion and all of those sorts of things, right? And when you, when you put on clean clothes, I think it's important to point out, you've got to first take off the dirty clothes, Right? And I see this, I'm seeing this more and more as a principle, right? And so Josiah is going to send these guys in to repair the house of the Lord. But before he did that, he had to get rid of the garbage. Take out the garbage before you start to repair the the house of the Lord. And so that's just kind of the order of things. And so uh, this is now while Jeremiah is kind of hanging around. And then flip over to verse 14. You know, they're kind of repairing the temple. They're going in and they're, you know, they're cleaning out. And now when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Now that's a whole sermon in itself. But in the interest of time, Hilkiah the priest is in there with all the guys that are cleaning out the temple and doing the remodeling, right? And he finds somewhere tucked away in the corner somewhere, we'll say a Bible, a book of the law, a scroll. And that was a novelty in an otherwise religious culture. Is that weird? That's plenty weird right? It's weird for us to get our heads around. Number one, we have printing, you know, we have, we don't write on scrolls and, you know, so we're a little more cavalier about how many Bibles we have laying around on our living room table. But nonetheless, I think there's a, there's, there's a direct correlation with the downfall of a, of a society, a downfall of a religious community, and the neglect of the Word of God. And in our day, the more we neglect the Word of God, the more we see the church in a downward spiral. And so that's the, that's the situation, that's the state that uh, Josiah found himself in uh, after a uh, couple of wicked kings and, and all of that. But anyway, that, it is what it is. And so, um, interestingly, this guy Hilkiah, you may have caught in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1, Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah. So this guy Hilkiah that finds the Bible was a priest. That was Jeremiah's dad. All right? And so Jeremiah would have been, you know, pretty intimately familiar with all this that's going on. 
skip down to verse, so anyway, so this guy, Hilkiah gives it to Shaphan and the scribe, and they pass it on up the line, and finally it gets to Josiah. Josiah reads these words, and he's totally uh, convicted and realizes that these words are very uh, powerful. These words predict doom to the nation that rejects the Lord, and he would have had a pretty good pulse on where their nation had been, and, um, and he wants them to repent as a nation. So you pick it up in verse 29, then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the Levites, and all the people, great and small, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the house of the Lord. I love this. I love this. And then the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart and all of his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. So you see this? Hilkiah finds this book. They pass it on up the line. Josiah reads it. Josiah says, oh my goodness, this is the book of the law. And oh my goodness, it tells us what happens as a nation if we reject the Lord, which we've kind of done. And oh my goodness. And so what Josiah does is he gathers all the people and he himself, I love this example, he himself as the leader of the nation reads the word. Doesn't have one of his cronies read it. He himself reads it. He himself then stands up and makes a public covenant that their pe- that the people would follow the Lord and keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart and all of his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And so he gathers the people for revival according to the word of the Lord. And then chapter 35, if you look over at verse 18, they celebrate a Passover, right? Because again, you see this, you see this sequence of things, right? Clear out the, clear out the trash, Clean out, the, clean out and repair the temple. Find the Word. Li- read the Word. Get convicted. Decide that you're going to live according to the Word. And then we celebrate fellowship with God. It's such a sequence of things that we see so much that pattern throughout the Bible. We celebrate, we, and if, but if, if we haven't cleaned out the trash, you ever notice it's hard to celebrate and, clean, and still have trash all over the house? Right? You ever have like nasty trash in your can? And you're trying to celebrate, right? And have a Passover. You can't do it at the same time. And when you do, it just doesn't work. And so we see that example throughout the Scripture too. People that, and we'll read that as we go through, you know, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all these guys. The, the, the people in the nation, they want to keep living according to garbage, but then they want, to, they want Jeremiah and Ezekiel to intercede for them. Hey, what, is, what does the Lord say? What does the Lord say about this situation? The Babylonians are coming. What's the Lord got to say about that? And, and it just doesn't work. So anyway, they're celebrating a Passover. Look at chapter 35, verse 18. I love this. There had been no Passover kept in Israel like that one since the days of Samuel the prophet. So that would have been a long time ago that there was a Passover like this, a celebration like this. And so what I want us to see here is there is a great revival going on, and Jeremiah has a front row seat. His dad is Hilkiah the priest. 
Jeremiah has a front row seat. God, is, God started speaking to him back in, uh, in the 13th year of, Jer- of Josiah. And so we've seen several years of this going on, and, and Jeremiah is just in the midst of this awesome revival. Doesn't that sound awesome? Wouldn't you want to be Jeremiah? Maybe at that moment, right? So you know the story, right? So then Josiah dies in battle. And this is where, you know, you have to kind of keep these guys straight. Josiah then dies in battle. He was, uh, frankly, a little careless. That's another story. Uh, but Josiah has three sons, all right? And again, you know, I'll tell you to memorize these, but I had to go back and review. Josiah has three sons. Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. All right? Everybody good with that? So Josiah dies. His son Jehoahaz, chapter 36, verse 2, Jehoahaz becomes king. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned for three months in Jerusalem. He was a bad king. And so uh, he reigned three months. He got shipped off to Egypt. Second brother then reigns, Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim reigns 11 years, and then he's carried off to Babylon. Now, you, you may know that the nation of Judah was ultimately conquered by the Babylonians, but it wasn't like they came in, had a, you know, dropped an atomic bomb and, and wiped them all out, and it was all done. No, the, and basically, they slowly weakened the nation of Judah. And part of how they did that is, is they hauled people away. They, they came in, sort of had a, if you will, a battle, or you know, not quite a complete defeat, and they would, they would take off a bunch of, uh, of slaves from Judah. And they did this uh, in three waves. They did it first in 605 B.C., and then the second time was in 597 B.C., Check my dates. Yep, 597 B.C. And then the third and final time was after about a year and a half of sieging, uh, basically surrounding the city of Jerusalem so that nobody could go in or out, starving them to, the, to death and to complete weakness. And then they came in and totally uh, wiped out the city, took it over, burned it, and hauled the rest of the people away. So, so the people were hauled away from Judah and Jerusalem in sort of three different waves. Well, anyway, Jehoiakim, the second son of Josiah, was hauled away during the first of those waves. So that would have been in 605 B.C. Now, interestingly, um, 2 Kings 24 then tells us that he died in Babylon and then his son, Jehoiachin, reigned. Okay? So I said the three sons of Josiah are Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. So Jehoahaz reigns three months. Jehoiakim reigns 11 years. And then his son, Jehoiachin, reigns. He's eight years old when he reigns. He reigns only three months, and then he's departed. He goes off in that second deportation in 597. Interestingly, he's the one of all these kings that there's something kind of uh, favorable mentioned at the very end of Jeremiah and at the uh, end of 2 Kings uh, chapter 25. says that Jehoiachin was later than uh, after many years given freedom and kind of, you know, they let him kind of come and go. Uh, a little bit there in Babylon. 
So anyway, after Jehoiachin was carried off to Babylon, Zedekiah, the third brother, reigns. And he reigns until the final conquest of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. They gouge out his eyes, they carry him off to Babylon, uh, where he ultimately dies there. All right? So three sons. Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah. Jehoahaz reigns three months. Doesn't really get much of a mention in the book of Jeremiah. Jehoiakim reigns 11 years. Jehoiakim's son then reigns three months. He didn't get much of a report either in Jeremiah. And then finally, Jehoiachin's uncle, Jehoiakim and Jehoahaz's brother, Zedekiah, then reigns for the remainder of the duration of the nation. Clear as mud? All right, muddy water, right? So, um, that takes us back to Jeremiah chapter 1. Now we can read Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 1, 1 through 3, with more background. Let's start all over. Is that fair? Are you kidding? Does this mean we're... And you're thinking, does this mean we're starting? <laughs> no. Uh, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, right? So now that Hilkiah was that guy that found the book of the law in the, in the temple. Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth, that small town just outside of Jerusalem, in the land of Benjamin, that obscure tribe that got swallowed up by the tribe of Judah, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of Josiah's reign, so a year after he started all that purging. And it came also in the days of Jehoiakim, that would have been the son of, Je of Josiah. You notice Jehoahaz was skipped there because, again, that was only three months. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. So, what we see, so I want to paint us a picture a little bit of Jeremiah's ministry, okay? Jeremiah's ministry started in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah. They are purging everything, all the bad stuff, and then a few years later, they're going to go in and they're going to rebuild the temple. They find the law. Jeremiah's got a front row seat for all this. They find the law. They make a covenant that they're going to serve the Lord according to His Word. It's awesome. There's just, you know, it's just like they're firing on all cylinders spiritually. They're tracking with the Lord. They have a, they have a Passover that's like nothing they've ever had since the days of Samuel. I mean, this is a high point. Then comes downward spiral after downward spiral for the destruction of Jerusalem to be finally ended after not one, not two, but three deportation and conquests finally ending in... Uh, starvation of all of your people. All the while, Jeremiah is the guy called by God to warn them. Right? Now, if you're Jeremiah, do you feel effective? Feel like a winner? Awesome cheerleader? 
great servant of the Lord, maybe God's not even speaking through me. It sure doesn't seem like it, because in my mind, if God's speaking to me, and He's speaking through me, then that means I get results, because that's how we're wired, right? You go to an investment broker, he gives you advice, right? And you come back a year later, and you're your whatever, your worth, your, your wealth is like 20% less than it was last year. And you say, what's up, right? I mean, we are a results-minded people, right? We love data, right? We track data. We love to misinterpret data. <laughs> but nonetheless, it's data, so we feel good about it right? We love data. We love results. We love success. We love all of that, right? What does God want from us? Please get this. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Chapter 4, verse 2. Moreover, it's required in stewards. What? that one be found faithful. 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 Why do I tell you that? Because we don't always feel successful, do we? If we're honest. As a matter of fact, maybe we feel like, you know, I haven't been successful yet, but by golly, one day I'm going to get there. Well, okay, fine, if that's what the Lord wants. But we look at we like to look at our lives according to success or impact or something like that. And I believe with all my heart, God says, relax. I just want faithfulness. Faithfulness. So much so, I heard a guy share one time, and I'll never forget this. You remember in Caesarea Philippi, they asked Jesus, hey, who, who do men say that I am? Or Jesus said, said to his disciples, who do men say that I am? Remember that? They said, oh, some say you're this guy, this guy, this guy. One of the guys they said was what? Jeremiah, right? So there's something about Jeremiah, though he wasn't successful by our standards, that when Jesus Christ is walking around, people say, that guy kind of reminds me of Jeremiah. Right? Would that be okay on your tombstone? Like, Jesus reminded people of me. <laughs> would that work? That would work. So please keep that in mind. Jeremiah, and not only did Jeremiah not really get to experience that effective success that we all love, but it's almost like salt in the wound that that's what he did experience at the beginning of his ministry, right? Not only did it never happen, but he saw it happen, and then, you know, he shows up, and every, like you show up on the team and your team starts losing, right? He would have had a complex, I would think. God loves faithfulness. Please don't forget that. Please don't forget that. Verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to me, 
Jeremiah, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. So God had a special purpose for Jeremiah, right? I believe there's no reason to think he doesn't have a special purpose for us as well, right? Now, are we called to be a prophet to the nation? Not, not necessarily. If we are, we are. That's awesome. But the point is not really, it's not the point of what Jeremiah was called to, but the point was God had a purpose for Jeremiah since before you were, before I formed you in the womb, he says, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. I think this is important because sometimes we may not feel like our life has that much significance. When did God come up with this plan for Jeremiah? When did God say, I'm going to put Jeremiah on earth to be a prophet to the nation of Judah at this point in time? When did God decide that? So let's say, I don't know, when was Jeremiah born? I don't know when he was born. Uh, let's say he was born in, uh, we'll say he's born in 550 B.C., right? So if he was born in 550 B.C., round numbers, when did God come up with the idea of ordaining Jeremiah? Like 560, 600, numbers go backwards, by the way. So since the numbers went backwards, I just did that math wrong right? He would have been like uh, 650 B.C., right? So 650 B.C., the numbers go backwards. Uh, did God come up with the idea of like, I think I'm going to have a guy call him Jeremiah. Uh, did he come up with that around 700 B.C.? 800 B.C.? 900 B.C.? During the time of Pharaoh? Sitting there watching Pharaoh play out, you know, and Moses and that whole thing and yeah, you know, there's going to be some nasty kings kind of like Pharaoh, actually within my people, Maybe I'll have uh, a prophet. I'm gonna, when did God think up all this? Right? I, I mean, I may be reading too much into it, but really, God is God. Probably eternally before. Is that fair? So I was born in 1962. When did God come up with me? 1960? 1950? right? You have to watch and see how things were going to play out in Madison, Indiana history, decide when he needed to have me show up, right? What's the point? When does God decide all this? Eternally outside of our time frame. Now to me, I mean, you can go a little bit crazy thinking about this, right? But if God thought of you eternally time past, present, and certainly he'll be with you eternally future. Do you lack significance? Okay, and during that window of time, which in the context of eternity past and eternity present, is a speck. Within that speck of time, God has an eternal purpose for you. Is it insignificant? Not at all. It's eternally ordained, I believe. I believe no different than Jeremiah. I mean, we may have a different task than Jeremiah had. Thank God. But a divine 
a divinely ordained task nonetheless. And here's why I bring this up. I see, honestly, people all the time, patients of mine, I'll say, of all ages that always question this. Like, why am I here? That's a key philosophical question. Why am I here? Well, you're here because God put you here for a reason. So the next logical question is, so what is that reason? And the answer is, you may not know. But your job is to be faithful. Your job is to be faithful. Your job is to serve the Lord obediently, and you may or may not even know it. But that's your job, to be faithful. And so, uh, you know, I see people um, toward the end of their lives feel like they'll say things like, well, I don't know why God, and maybe they're, maybe they're suffering or whatnot. They'll say things like, I don't know why God keeps me around. Have you ever heard an older person say that? I don't know why God keeps me around. Well, I don't either, but don't bemoan that because God is smarter than we are. God ordains our, our times, past, present, and future. He knows the number of hairs on our head. He knows the number of days that we'll live. And it's all very, very significant. And so I belabor that point a little bit because I want us to know that your lives are significant in the eyes of God. And your job is to be faithful, to be obedient to His Word by the power of His Holy Spirit, and to live that way with that perspective, with that understanding, knowing, uh, as Corinthians says, that your labor is not in vain. His ways are higher than our ways. So let him worry about that. Verse 6, he goes on, Then I said, then said I, Jeremiah speaking, Ah, Lord God, but I cannot speak, for I am a youth. God says, Oh, I forgot how old you were. Yeah, that's right. You won't work. I've got to use your dad. That's why your dad found the Bible in the, in the, pre, in the temple. No, he doesn't say that. So Jeremiah is humble. That's good. He feels like he's in over his head, which is good. You ever felt like you're in over your head? Right? Parents. Parents. You ever feel like, I got this. Let's start this out. Parents of young children. I got this. Change the diaper, feed them. Don't leave them out in the cold. That's all you got to do, right? I got this. And you realize, whoa, it's more complicated than that, right? You know how you know it's more complicated than that? Because now you won't say, my kid will never do that. <laughs> See, you used to say that, right? You used to be the guy in Walmart, right? <laughs> yeah, my kid will never do that. I'll have that kid so whooped into shape, won't it be funny? My kid will never do that. Uh, eat your words, right? Then your kids get a little older. You say, hey, I got this parenting. It's a good thing I've been a parent. You know, I've been a parent for so many years. I got this thing down right? When do you say I got this down as a parent? The only time you say I got this down as a parent is when? Before you become one, right? And then you say, God help me. I need divine help. I need divine wisdom. I need divine inspiration. I need divine everything, right? It's good to feel like you're in over your head. That's a good thing. God knows it. Jeremiah's in over his head. He said, I can't even speak because I'm too young. It's okay to be 
aware of our limitations. But let me just say this. Don't let that draw us away from faithfully serving the Lord. Don't let that, just because you don't feel qualified to be a parent, does that mean you don't, you don't be a parent? Sorry, that kid's, got, that kid's over my head. It's not, managing that kid's too much for me. I can't, I, I, no, once you're there, you're there, right? And once God gives you a life to be a steward of, that's your life to be a steward of. And so, uh, you know, Jeremiah's humility is good, but, uh, but don't let that shy you away. You know, how many times in the Bible, David killed Goliath when he was a teenager, right? Josiah, we said, was eight years old, right, when he became king. Uh, Paul told Timothy, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young, right? So many examples of God using young people. So don't, uh, and if you're young today, listen, if you're a young person today, Hear me now. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Right? You can be faithful when you're young. You can be faithful when you're old. And it's important to be so. So, but the Lord said to me, verse 7, Do not say I'm a youth, for you shall go to whom, to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. So we have to remember that if God wants us to do something, He will equip us doesn't matter if we're properly trained or if we've been to the right school. If God wants us to do something, He will equip us. doesn't matter our talent. doesn't matter our qualifications. What matters is we have to be willing to be used by Him and be led by His Spirit and follow His Word. Simple as that. Verse 8, he goes on, Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. So the reality is God knows we'll face opposition as we, as we step out to serve Him. Has everybody experienced that? We step out to serve the Lord. God, God calls us to a, to a life, however, however that plays out. We obey Him. We, we do what He's called us to do. And we will face opposition. He says, do not be afraid of their faces. Do not be afraid of their faces. And God knows that it can be intimidating to serve Him at times. You notice, uh, to me, one of the greatest warriors in, the, in all the Bible was Joshua, right? And you imagine the life of Joshua. You're coming up into the promised land. You've been, you've been more than content, I'm guessing now. You've been more than content to be right beside Moses all those years, right? Because it's kind of... Uh, I always kind of enjoyed being like sort of the assistant to the guy that's going to take all the heat, Right? And Joshua was probably pretty content to be there. Now, all of a sudden, you look at Joshua chapter 1, God starts out, he says, Moses, my servant, is dead. It's a pretty blunt statement. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, why would God tell Joshua that? Because, guess what, now you're exposed, right? You're the guy. And God says four times in Joshua chapter 1, be strong and of good courage. Be strong and of good courage. It takes courage to live this Christian life, and God knows it. God knows that we need it, and God knows that we face opposition, we face intimidation. He says to Jeremiah, do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, behold, I've put my words in your mouth. And you say, wow, wouldn't it be awesome if God put his words in my mouth? Wouldn't it be awesome? Just open the book. 
Start reading. And God's words are in your mouth, right? The very words of God. And we need to regard them as that, right? We need to have such high regard for this word that it is the words of God. These words were penned by God. These words reflect the heart and the nature and the character of God. And even all the different sort of genres, right? We were reading Colossians and now we read Jeremiah. These are two different kinds of books. But they all have tremendous value and we need to regard them as valuable words of God. So yeah, God puts His words in Jeremiah's mouth, and when we read His words, God's putting His words in our mouths. He says, see, I have set this day, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to pull out and to, pu- to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. And so you get this idea, again, you're going to root out, you're going to pull down, and then you're going to build and plant. It sounds like a big responsibility, but God is going to equip Jeremiah to do that. Verse 11, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? He said, I see a branch of an almond tree. Then the Lord said to me, you've seen well, for I am ready to perform my word. And so I think this is just a simple thing that sometimes God gives us the simple experiences of life to help us discern, right? You ever wonder about these prophets? It says, the Lord spoke to Jeremiah. You ever think, what, what does that mean? Like, did he speak audibly? Is God capable of speaking audibly? You bet. Did he speak like in that still small voice? Yeah, maybe. Did he speak with just kind of the peace in his heart? We don't really know. Um, but I think sometimes God gives us these little examples. Flip over to the right briefly to chapter 32. This one's an interesting one. Fast forward the context for a second. Jeremiah is in prison for talking uh, about the Lord in ways that the people didn't like. Uh, you know, the nation is uh, much closer to being overtaken by the Babylonians at this point. And this curious thing happens to Jeremiah while he's in prison. Uh, chapter 32, verse 6. And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you saying, buy my field which is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Now you may recall the Old Testament law, right? When, when real estate was passed, uh, basically it was to be passed within the family. So if somebody's going to buy a piece of real estate, uh, you know, first dibs to the closest line in the family, that sort of thing. And so this guy, um, um, Hanamel, uh, Jeremiah's cousin comes to him and says, hey, I know that the Babylonians are coming. They've got us, you know, they're, they're about ready to take us over. And, uh, you know, buying real estate right now is probably not a good investment idea, right? Would you think buying real estate is a good investment idea when the Babylonians have you surrounded and they're about ready to burn down the whole, the whole area? Bad real estate idea. Secondly, if you're in prison, and that would have been, you know, like dungeon prison. There's one reference where, you know, he's so deep in mud, they have to pull him out by his arms, right? If you're in prison, you're sitting there thinking, you know, I'm in the mood to buy some real estate. Would you think that? It's the craziest idea imaginable for God to say, hey, by the way, your cousin's going to show up, ask you to buy a piece of real estate, I want you to buy it. 
Look at verse 8. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, sure enough, came to me in the court of the prison according to the word of the Lord. And he said to me, please buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours and the redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Look at what he says here now. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. You see what he did there? He gave him a little confirmation, right? If, God said, if you have a still small voice in your heart that says, you know, you ought to pray for such and so because they're going through a hard time, right? And then that afternoon, you go to Walmart, and you run into such and so, and they say, you know, can you please pray for me? I've been having a hard time, right? Then you would say, then I knew that that was the voice of the Lord. And I think it's important for us to kind of navigate through life like this, because I think the more we navigate through life like this, the more the Lord reveals himself to us. And so anyway, back to chapter 1. So just this little simple thing, you know, the almond branch. God says, hey, what do you see? He says, I see a branch of an almond tree. God says, yep, that's right. And then the word, verse 13, of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot and it's facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north, calamity shall break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, says the Lord, they shall come and each one set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against its, all its walls all around and against all the cities of Judah. And so what we see here is uh, Jeremiah sees this boiling pot that represents the Babylonians. The Babylonians would have come out of the north uh, when they conquered uh, Jerusalem and the rest of Judah. And... Uh, you know, that would have been uh, kind of a hard pill to swallow when Jeremiah first hears from the Lord during the reign of Josiah, right? So it's the reign of Josiah. God says, hey, I'm going to bring the Babylonians out of the north. That would have been kind of a hard one to hear. But Jeremiah's faithful. He goes on, I will utter my judgments against them concerning all their wickedness because they have forsaken me, burned incense to other gods, and worshipped the works of their own hands. Now, multiple times, and we won't go through it now in detail, but just let me say, multiple times, God's people were warned, if you turn away from following me with all your heart, and if you turn to these idols that your neighboring nations worship, bad stuff's going to happen. And God was actually very specific. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, says, the, if they forsake the Lord, the Lord will send on you cursing, confusion, rebuke, in all that you set your hand to do until you are destroyed, until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings in which you have forsaken me. Ironically, Solomon, when he's dedicating the temple, in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, it talks about this. When he dedicates the temple, he says, hey, if your people forsake you, and he's, you know, he's praying. He says, if your people forsake you, then he goes out and says all this bad stuff that's going to happen. It was eerie how accurate the prophetic description was of what ultimately happened to the nation of Judah at the hands of the Babylonians. And so what God is saying here now uh, by the mouth of Jeremiah, he's been saying for a long, long time by this point in time, and... Jeremiah is the guy that has to say it. Verse 17, he says, now God says to Jeremiah, therefore, prepare yourself and arise and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. And so I want to just point out just briefly, three things he tells Jeremiah to do at this point. 
Number one, therefore, prepare yourself and arise. Prepare yourself and arise. You know, uh, there was a couple years ago, I, f- I felt like every time I opened the Bible, this word prepare kept, up, kept coming up. Prepare, prepare, prepare. And I realized as I was kind of reflecting and praying on that, you know, really our Christian life, if you think about it, our Christian life is in many ways a series of tests that determine how prepared we are. Is that fair? And my mind always goes back to the analogy of school, Right? Everybody understand when I, when I say school? You know what I'm talking about? Right? Y'all have school. So you go in and school has these things called tests, right? And I remember several times, well, not several, I remember a handful of times, I'd walk in and I'd say, in my mind, I dare you to ask me whatever you want to ask me because I have prepared for this test. I'm going to nail it, right? I'm, I'm playing basketball in an hour, and the only thing between me and that basketball court is a series of 100 questions, and I'm going to bust them out, and all I really care about is playing basketball right now, because I'm so prepared for this test, right? I remember, honestly, a chemistry test I took in college. I walked in, and I thought, boy, I sure hope there's a lot of questions here about rock and roll trivia <laughs> on this chemistry test, right? If you'd asked me A, Crosby, B, Stills, C, Nash, D, fill in the blank. Anybody? Young, right? I would have got it, right? Instead, I got a 43% on that test. I still remember the percentage. This would have been in 1980, I believe, three, right? Still scars me, right? How much of life is preparation? How much of what happens today in our Christian experience in terms of our faithfulness, is really just merely a reflection of what we've been doing for the last week, the last month, the last year, when nobody's watching. When the sun's not up yet. Right? All of that is what makes or breaks the test of today. Right? And I see it. I see it all the time, right? The wind, blow, wind changes directions and we say, ah! right? And then have you ever noticed there are some people that are just like resilient? Why are they resilient spiritually? Because they're prepared. Because they're prepared. Because they are prepared. Would you go into battle without being prepared? No way. No way. So what has God said? Therefore, prepare yourself and arise and speak to them all that I command you. What's the second thing he tells him? He just says, speak. Speak what I've commanded you. Not your opinions, just God's direction. What's our job? To speak God's word. And do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. The Hebrew word that dismayed here really kind of means don't fall apart, right? So you get this? I mean, we're going in, you know, Jeremiah's going into a hostile, uh, hostile ministry in a sense. And God says, not only are you going into a hostile ministry, but you're going to deliver bad news as a warning to these people. And they're rebellious and they're idol worshipers and everything else. And it's not going to go well. And they're not really going to hear from you. But your job is to be faithful. And I want you to be prepared. I want you to speak my word. And I want you to not fall apart. That's resilience. 
And it's a picture of a great life. It's a picture of a great life. And you ever notice, like, being prepared, speaking the words of the Lord, not falling apart? That doesn't sound real glamorous. You ever notice that? Being faithful? Doesn't sound real glamorous. Nobody wins the Nobel Prize for being faithful, necessarily. Maybe they, are. Maybe they do. No disrespect to Nobel laureates in the room, right? But there's just something cool about it, though. There's something cool about faithfully serving the Lord. So, Jeremiah, your part is to be prepared to speak and to not be dismayed. And look at what my part is, the Lord would say. For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar. Where do we get our resilience? By lots of exercise? No, by dependence on the Lord, because He makes us an iron pillar. Thank the Lord. And bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against its princes, against its priests, and against the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. Why? For I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. That's God's part of the deal. Our job? Be prepared. Speak the word. Don't be dismayed. God's job? Make us a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall to be with us, to deliver us, to make sure that they may fight against us, but they will not prevail against us. What a great promise from God. And so you see these two sides, right? Be prepared. Speak the word. Don't be dismayed. God says, I'm going to make you resilient, right? We've said this a million times. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 through, 12 through 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. It's a great balance. And it's a great life. Be prepared. Speak the words of God. Never underestimate the significance of God placing you on this earth, in this place, for such a time as this. Whether you realize it, what the big plan is or not, never underestimate it. Because God has ordained us to be here and to be here now. And our job is to be faithful. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that You give us this life, that You give us purpose, You give us Your Word, You give us the strength to be resilient. Lord, help us to be faithful, to speak Your Word, to be prepared for the, for the tests of life, to not be dismayed, to not be afraid of their faces. Lord, help us just to be faithful. And we'll give you all the praise and honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.